You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Land O'Lakes President and CEO Beth Ford joined the Washington Post to discuss the challenges in farming, food production, and distribution during the coronavirus pandemic. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this Washington Post Live as we continue our Path Forward series today with the president and CEO of Lando Lakes, Beth Ford. Ford boasts an extensive background managing supply chains across multiple industries. She's also the first openly gay woman to become CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And with that, Beth, thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Beth, most people know Lando Lakes as a dairy company, but you're also a farmer cooperative consisting of dairy farmers, bean growers, corn growers, processing plants. Uh, in that great 60 Minutes profile of you last October, you talked about the impact of the trade war and flooding on farmers then. Now comes the coronavirus. What impact has all of this had on our food supply and the supply chain in general? You know, I when I look at the food supply, I think about who carries the most risk in the food supply. And the fact is that the farmer carries the most risk oftentimes in the food supply. So here in this moment with coronavirus, you're seeing this again. What has happened is that, for instance, cattle prices are down 20 to 30 percent. Dairy prices at the farm gate are down, you know, 30 to 40 percent. Hog prices are down dramatically. Corn prices down. Soybean prices are down. And the reason is that there's been disruption and elimination um, in many areas of food service, so a demand um, uh, component. And so we have too much supply. And so what happens? Supply, demand imbalance. Pricing at the farm gate falls. Um, so while you see this push at retail with consumers trying to load up their market basket, um, you see on the other side at the farm level a dramatic decrease in pricing at the farm level. And this is really unfortunate because it's been a very challenging time. You noted the, the, the trade issues. Trade is central to the profitability of the American farmer. You noted the weather issues also uh, concerning. Um, and so here they had thought that they were going to step into a more normalized year. And here comes coronavirus again, a drop, dramatic drop of farm gate pricing. So let's talk more about demand. Um, right now, because of the coronavirus, we're seeing, um, I think you were talking about this before, about on the retail side, consumers like me racing into grocery stores, food stores, buying up butter and other things to, do, to bake, to bake pies and things like that, to make dinner at home. But then on the other side, we're seeing stories and reading stories about farmers dumping millions of gallons of milk or destroying or destroying crops. Can you talk about why that is? Why are farmers destroying milk and crops when they're clearly, when you look at the, the, the lines for food lines around the country, clearly there's the, a demand for that, for, for those products? You know, so there's a distribution challenge. Um, part of that is that many of the manufacturing or processing facilities were built to manufacture products that go into food service. So I always think there's a difference between um, manufacturing a 640-pound block of cheese and cheese that you buy at the grocery store. There's a difference between bottling milk that goes into a grocery store and other products that are used, dairy products that are used for food service. So this uh, distortion 
um, means that the, the value chain, the supply chain, can immediately react and ship because manufacturing or processing facilities are built that way. As well, if you're a dairy farmer, um, this dumping of the milk, if you're a dairy farmer, first of all, we were stepping into what's called flush, the most productive time for a cow. Say so they generate the most milk because it's comfortable, right? It's nice and cool at night. It's cool in the day. So they're comfortable. They, may, they um, produce more milk. And so with that, the, the production was meant to also support food service. So now we have too much milk. So what happens then? Well, you don't just turn the cow off, right? Now you can't turn the cow off. There's not enough demand. And the processing can't simply shift just to meet all of the demand at retail. And that's why you see the dumping of milk. There's no home for it. The same thing on, for instance, the hog population, cattle, those things. It's such a tight value chain. And it's meant to be just in time. Um, and so when there's a level of distortion like this, this disruption, there's no place to go with it. And thus you see these stories of why is it it's being tight at the retail store, food line, and at the same time we're having to destroy um, products. One other comment you mentioned uh, crops that are being, um, you know, that, that we aren't able to harvest. And that's, an, that's a labor issue. That's always been a challenge, and it is even more challenging right now on uh, making sure that we have enough uh, labor on the farm to, uh, to go to harvest. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because we have a, a question from Ron Zeller, who is a retired Montana State Agriculture employee, and he asks the que this question, how should the U.S. resolve immigration and guest worker issues in food processing going forward? You know, this has been a real challenge. It, it, what's interesting to me is when I'm in D.C. Uh, and talking about these issues, I don't know that there's a, a pushback on the need for guest workers. We need H2H to be, we need expansion or extensions of uh, labor availability, and everybody knows that. And by the way, farm labor um, and, and uh, um, you know, the, the, I guess, salaries paid to laborers have increased even more than other line um, and manufacturing uh, labor uh, roles, but there just isn't an interest by many in the United States to take those roles. So how should this be resolved? This has to be a priority from the administration. We need immigration reform. We should be targeting these types of jobs where there is clearly a need and not a desire necessarily by um, the American worker. You know, can we get into the issue here, um, uh, big farmers versus versus small farmers? And I'm wondering, is there a difference between how small farms and large farms weather uncertainty like the uncertainty we're going through now because of coronavirus? That is such a smart question because, you know, I think people need to understand what the dynamic is. You know who gets squeezed? the mid-sized and smaller farmer. The larger farmer, there's a, a right to participate expense, isn't there? There's a, it's about labor, it's about environmental, um, it's all of the expenses that go in that you have to meet from a regulatory perspective. Um, so if you're a small farmer, a niche farmer, a small producer, you have a couple hundred cows, you probably are doing that with your family, right? And, and you're able to withstand at some level, but you're getting squeezed on your price at the farm gate. I just said that. And many of them, what they do is they go out and get a second job, right? That's how they survive. The large farmer, the scale farmer, is able to hire more expertise in some of these other areas. 
And so when you're not differentiated, let's say that you were in commodity plays, commodity areas of, of agriculture, what are, your, what are your plays? You can either get more volume, you can get more scale, or you differentiate. It's very difficult to differentiate if you're a corn grower or a bean grower, and thus export markets are so cent central. What we've noted over the last number of years is that the farmers that are being squeezed most are those in the middle. They are, aren't big enough to hire separate uh, uh, labor or expertise, and they're too small to withstand this level of pressure at the farm gate. So they're having to look at other ways to innovate and other roles they're taking. I think it was about 2017, a study I saw, where the average farmer was making $43,000 a year. The median was minus 1,500. This has been multiple years where farmers were losing money at the farm gate, and you're seeing this compression, this pressure, especially at the mid-sized farmer, and thus the, the shift to scale. They have to get some level of scale to withstand this level of market pressure and something like this, where markets have dropped so dramatically, they have to have a certain level of scale to withstand. Well, Beth, given that the data that you just gave us, um, this dovetails nicely with a question from Naomi Gutman, a professor from Hamilton College in New York, who asked, why won't the government subsidize small local farms instead of agribusiness? The government, you know, so the I think in this instance, USDA, um, Secretary Bernou, I've, I have had many conversations with them, with the administration, and then the the um, industry organizations really tried to put voice um, to uh, what programs might be helpful for the small, mid-sized, and large farms, and they really were trying in this instance to. Um, to kind of level load and allocate some funding or allocate um, some help into the small, mid-sized, and large farmers. It was based on the, num the amount of milk you may have produced or the number of acres that you have, et cetera, the your output per acre. So by definition, the checks for the larger are going to be larger than the smaller. Now, there's a counterintuitive point here. The reason you don't want to necessarily cap a large farmer, and reminder, even though a farmer is large, 96% of farms are still family owned. So I don't want anybody to have a narrative that, well, that's that big corporate farm and it's not the small farm. They're still family owned. They've been able to withstand, they grow, they grow like business, business does. But the counterintuitive piece here is if you cap that for the large grower, they're gonna to continue to just produce and produce more. And it continues to depress the price in the marketplace and it continues to hurt a smaller producer for a longer period of time. So in this instance, I think the USDA tried to come up with a program that was helpful for um, farmers and producers of different scale, different size. Um, whether it really hits the target, I think we're gonna need more funding in agriculture as we get to this next round four of funding. Well, I, I, actually, you, you keep anticipating my questions, and that was go, the next question was going to be, what more should the federal government be doing to help farms and to help farmers? Um, the federal government is going to need to, to, um, to continue to, um, you know, to continue to increase the funding to CCC, the Commodity um, uh, Corporation. So if you really looked at um, if you looked at, I guess, just inflation over time, um, you would go up to about 68 billion of additional funding that would be available for us to allocate against farmers and agriculture. 
And, um, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of pans in the pot right now. There's a lot of requests. Everybody is pushing for this um, for, for different industries. So what is going to be necessary is an increase that, that really um, is more aligned with what has happened with inflation. Um, can we talk about um, COVID and, and how it's impacting, impacting the meat processing plants, meat packing and food processing? Some researchers say that the reason why we're seeing sort of COVID-19 coronavirus running like wildfire, it seems, through some meatpacking processing plants is because of the fast moving air pushed through the plants. But is it a lack of testing or oversight? I think you need testing. I think you need oversight, but you, you need to know that these packing plants, and I, this isn't my expertise, but I'm mm -hmm. gonna tell you what I know of it, which is that, you know, that by definition, the, it's hard for them to segment their employees um, in that packing plant because it's on a line, right, in their, their um, house next to each other. I know that they've tried to put in place PPE. I know they've tried to put in place testing. Um, and and uh, what we have is a situation where the most efficient design for the plant for the maximum output, and again, this is the thin margin business, is now, is now resulting in this kind of a, a situation. What we were able to do at our plants, I will just tell you, is that we have segmented or we've separated shifts. We do test our employees, make sure that we take their temperature before they come in, we make sure that there's minimal um, oversight. We don't allow external visitors. We've done a number of things to change the way we're operating to protect our employees. That is our number one priority. All right, well, th this conversation is part of the Path Forward series. So let's talk about the future of food retail. How do you think the pandemic will impact the way we organize our food supply chains in the future? Well, you know, what's interesting is that uh, we're all eating at home now, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so we certainly have seen our retail business change fairly dramatically. Now, I, I'm going to give you a point of interest. Over the last month, as we've seen markets open up again, our states open up again, one of the things, of course, we're tracking is our food service orders. And actually, our food service orders at this point for the month are almost at 98 to 99% of our original plan, which means that the pipeline is starting to be refilled again against food service demand. Now, whether that is just they're filling the pipeline in anticipation of opening of some mm. restaurants or the restaurants are going to go and they're going to do curbside or outside dining, not sure we're going to see um, as we work over time. How will this change the food supply system? I think that you there was a, a real focus on innovation uh, differentiation in offers at retail. We worked very closely with key partners, Kroger, Walmart, others to say, what kind of cheese product could we come up with for you? Mm. What kind of different things could we do for you um, on our butter uh, franchise and butter portfolio? And now we're really back to the basics of, boy, we, it's having a hard time keeping up with all of our demand for our butter, our base butter business. Uh, you know, what, what will be interesting is how quickly we go back to different differentiated service, differentiated offer, different products are the primary issue versus the base business. I don't know that you're gonna see a reset of the manufacturing platform against that. Rather, what you would see is a push towards making sure we have enough supply to match retail um, at a more uh, supportive rate. I wanna make sure I heard you correctly. So you don't think that food producers will change um, what they produce as a result of this? 
I don't think that an immediate manufacturing platform shift um, is likely until we understand a little bit more the path of COVID and how long this will last. I say this to say, well, is food service going to open up again? How quickly is that going to open up again, right? Um, is demand going to normalize? Because we have seen elevated demand for our products, our butter products, our cheese products, our pudding, um, everything at a level that more matches Mother's Day, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, like the baking huh. season, right? Key season. And will that stay with us? Or when food service opens back up, are, you know, what's going to happen with the other ways that we used to um, get nutrition, that we used to go out? And with that, you have to have products um, and manufacturing capacity for that as well. And just you know, straight up, the, the reality is to change a manufacturing uh, platform at scale to meet it is not an inexpensive, inexpensive endeavor, and it takes a while to do that. So you're not going to see an immediate shift to say, mm -hmm. boy, we're going to shift the manufacturing platform dramatically. Well, do, do you think farmers then might decide, you know what, between the tariffs, the floods, not coronavirus, I'm, I'm going to shift to something else? What we are seeing is an increase in bankruptcies. We have seen, and you, this has been the history of farming, you see some that decide, hey, this is the last year I'm going to be doing this. You see more acres moving, meaning land being sold. Um, the banks are starting to de-risk their portfolios against operating loans, against mm. agriculture. So sometimes the banks will be in charge. Um, we're going to see continued consolidation. You know, consolidation was occurring, for instance, in the dairy sector at a 10% clip last year. And in fact, at this year, the start of this year, we're at 34,000 dairy producers. Now, you referenced the uh, 60 Minutes interview that I did last uh, October. At that point, it was at 50,000, uh, a little bit less than 50,000 producers. So you can see the dramatic decline in the number of producers in the country. You know, in that 60 Minutes profile, one of the fascinating things was how Lando Lakes uses technology to to maximize the farmland. It's really, it was really fascinating, not just the farmland, but even the cows uh, with yeah. their own Fitbits and things like that. And I'm wondering what kinds of technology do we need to invest in to prevent this sort of volatility in the future? I don't know if it will prevent volatility, but you know what the most immediate and most urgent, urgent investment that must be made as a country is in broadband and technology in rural communities. There is, a, there are probably 24, now last I said 19 or 20, let's call it 24 million Americans that lack broadband access, 19 million are in rural America. And it is concerning um, at, at a level that is more than just farming. The reality is it doesn't stop at the farm. There are communities that are sitting next to where these farmers are. And, you know, that means the schools lack investment. That means there's no health care. There's a risk of 450 rural hospitals shutting down. And there's a shortage of 40,000 doctors in rural communities, and there's no technology. So here we are in this pandemic where we're all working from home and we're going to school, right? My kids are going to school remotely, and you need healthcare access, you need to go to a doctor, and there's no technology access. One of the things we did, partnered with Microsoft, with the Mayo Clinic, with others, is to stand up access free Wi-Fi. We turned on free Wi-Fi in our um, local retailers and rural communities so that you could come park outside, get free Wi-Fi, and be able to access a doctor 
at the Mayo Health Partner Center, there are others that are partnering with us. Um, and that what we heard from the Mayo, this is the future. They said that they had more contacts for telemedicine appointments in one day than they had all of last year. All of last year, there is such a need. So when you say, what is the technology investment? We must have the playing field, the operating environment stabilized by having investment in these communities, because without that, you cannot have a stable ag community. It's hard for a farmer who's raising um, their children. I mean, this is, this is a family. You know, it's hard for them to feel settled and to optimize production on our behalf if they don't have the technology that they need for their families, for their communities. That is the primary focus of my attention. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned Wi-Fi that you're providing. I'm wondering if it's the same as the, from, from my notes here, as Land Lakes is providing free Wi-Fi at more than 100 co-op locations across 14 states. Is that what you were talking about? It is. And actually, now it's up to 170. And um, we, I've talked to a number of governors. It's, you know, it's about access and it's also about um, regulatory uh, changes where they can identify, for instance, a location, meaning your car, you're calling into a doctor that can be seen as a place uh, um, of, of, uh, for a visit. And thus, um, there's reimbursement. To, and I, I think the more we can encourage businesses that are in rural communities are those that lack access to turn on their Wi-Fi for free. Right now, it is urgent so that we can have access to health care and education for our families. Uh, I, I want to, in the, the little bit of time that we have left, uh, talk about the logo change issue. Recently, Land Lakes decided to roll out a new logo, um, moving away from uh, Mia, who was long time on uh, the part of the logo of Land Lakes. What led the decision to change the logo? You know, we're stepping into our 100th anniversary. You noted we're a farmer-owned cooperative. We found out many people didn't weren't aware of that. And they said, well, why didn't you tell us that? We would have been even more likely to purchase your products. So as we're stepping towards our 100th anniversary, which is next year, and as we're saying, what are we trying to message? What is different about Land O'Lakes um, beyond uh, the quality of our products? Um, what is different And when many of us are seeking to understand where do our what does our product come from? Where does our food come from? What is different is that we are farmer-owned. The milk that we that is used to make the butter, the milk that is used to make the cheese, um, the Purina, um, our products, what's different is that we are farmer-owned. And we wanted to shout about that on our packaging. The, the farmers on, the, the, on that package are our farmers. They're our members. And so that was what led to the change. It was a number of, of years of research that said, what is different and what do we need to do to engage others who are unfamiliar with our franchise, mm -hmm. our butter franchise, especially about uh, what we are. So one more question on this. Some activists encouraged the removal of Mia, the Native American character featured in the former logo due to concerns of cultural appropriation. Did that have any influence in it your decision? Not. It did not. I was not being, our team was not being pressured. This was not an issue. Uh, about that. This was really us looking forward, trying to message to consumers who are making decisions about what they buy based on the values that they believe the company has. And what we know was special for us was um, that we're farmer owned. And that was what led to this change. Um, Lana Lakes has roughly 10,000 employees. And as the leader of that company, during a time of crisis, what lessons have you learned? 
Well, I hope what you do is you're going back to the basics, probably what your parents told you, you know, and what you think that you show up as every day, but maybe now much more intentionally. You know, the most important thing that we focus on is the employee, their safety, their health, their mental health, um, their concerns. And when you, when you put them as the primary uh, area of focus, our members, their health, the health of their farms, the health of their families, you know, what, what we've learned is by focusing on that, we've gotten more, even more levels of engagement um, across our business. Um, more, I don't want to say it's, uh, I have gratitude and I'm so grateful for my team's efforts to do everything they can right now in a, in a very difficult time. Um, and so that's what I would say. It's not a, what I hope is a change. What I hope is, is a, an intentional view of what is really the priority. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Beth, the last question comes from Esther Ngumbi from Illinois, and she asks, how do we build an equitable food system post-COVID-19? How do we correct the inequalities that existed before the pandemic? I wish I had a magic answer. I really do. I, I mean, I think information, you know, less than, I think it's one and a half percent of the population is involved in production agriculture. Um, food supply, to me, it is a pillar of our national security. And as I said at the beginning, you know, what my observe is that much of the risk is held at the farm level. And what I'd like to do, just like you're mentioning here, um, Esther, is to make sure that the rewards profile is aligned um, with the risk profile and make sure that we understand um, how we can make this effective for the consumer and for the farmer and everybody involved in the value chain. I don't have a, a magic answer. What I do know is we need to make some structural changes to make sure we're investing appropriately um, at the farm level and beyond. Okay, I lied. This is the last question. Structural change. <laughs> if, if, if you were president of the United States for one day, what's the one thing you would do for, for, for your sector to, to help it move forward post-COVID-19? You know, I, I promise you, I really have thought of that. I, I thought to myself, what is the one thing that we need to do? And what we need to do is make sure the investments at the farm level are supported. And, it, and it's unfortunate because I come back to well, what is the government funding that will allow for that? Because I recognize that the other side of this, you said, well, wait a minute, the consumer can't afford food, right? So the reason this is such a narrow, skinny margin business is because we're trying to make sure there's a safe, affordable food supply for all. And so without this kind of appropriate funding at the farm level to make sure that there's, um, there's I guess, solid structural support for the long-term, investment for the long-term, not just for today, for the long-term, we have to come up with different programs that support the farmer um, for the things that they do every day, that he or she is doing every day. And I don't know what that magic answer is because there are different types of farmers. Immigration reform is important. You know, technology is important to these farmers. A base price is important to these farmers. Insurance is important mm -hmm. to these farmers. I can come up with a list. Banking is, I mean, you have to be a, a, a financial expert, a health and safety expert, a farming expert, everything to be able to withstand this pressure. And so that hits a number of angles to say, what is the one thing? There are multiple things. 
Beth Ford, president and CEO of Lando Lakes. That is all that we have time for. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.